Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. We are so excited that you are joining us for the show today. This podcast aims to explore a biblical life view in a conversational tone. Let's join our host and founder of Servants of Grace, Dave Jenkins, for today's episode. Thanks so much for listening. Welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this podcast. And with me today, I get to welcome Dr. Street. Dr. Street, welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. Yeah, it's a pleasure to be with you, Dave. Thank you, sir. Um, can you uh, please tell us a little bit about yourself, your life, marriage, ministry, and some of the current ministry projects that you're working on? Sure can. Wow. I was blessed by by God to be raised in a wonderful Christian home. My mother and father were both uh, very devoted believers. My father was a pastor. He actually actually pastored churches that were, he felt it was his calling, churches that were dying. And um, so he would go in church, build the church back up, and then uh, and then would move um, uh, to another church that was about ready to die. And so that's kind of the way in which we were. I grew up. Uh, we grew up in a lot of poverty because um, these churches that are ready to die can't pay a pastor very much. So often, not all the time, but often my father was bivocational. And um, so it's a wonder, actually, a wonderful home to grow up in. You learn how to be dependent upon the Lord, and it's actually my mother and father that led me to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior back when I was around seven years of age. My father passed away many years ago, back in 1985. My mother just passed away. She was actually living in our home. Uh, she passed away a year ago. So um, it, it, it was a wonderful background. Um, my parents really loved me, treated me well. I have two sisters and so on. Later on, I met my wife, Janie. We met in college at uh, Cedarville University, actually. Oh, really? And we got married uh, a few years after that, and we've been married now for, well, this year would be 42 years. God has blessed us with four children. All four of them love the Lord, are committed to Christ, and our two daughters are married. Each of them have three of our grandkids, so we have six grandkids. We we just love them all, and we'll have wonderful son-in-laws, and then we'll have one son that's married, our daughter-in-law as well, and one son that's still single. So, uh, and then God has blessed us in the fact that uh, all four of our kids have been able to go to Master's University, graduate, and then the two boys went through seminary, got their MDivs, THMs, and are intending to use all that education in order to really serve the Lord with their life as well. My ministry uh, goes way back. I really view myself as primarily a pastor. I'm not... um, I never said it as my goal to be a professor, but in God's perfect sovereignty, he ended up leading me in that direction. So the first 25 years of my life, I was actually a pastor in in Ohio, and until God called me out to California, and I've been in California now for almost 20 years, um, serving at the Master's University and Seminary, and that's where I teach um, graduate classes in biblical counseling in the uh, Master of Arts in Biblical Counseling, and then we have a doctoral program that's right around the corner that we'll be launching as well, and then I also teach at the Master's Seminary, and that's a great privilege to be able to teach future pastors and help them to understand the sufficiency of Scripture and addressing serious problems of life. So that kind of gives you a little bit of a catch-up on what's going on in my life. Well, you're wonderfully busy for all the right reasons and in, and in all the right ways, so praise the Lord. Thanks. Can you uh, please tell us a little bit about your book, Passions of the Heart, Biblical Counsel for Stubborn Sexual Sins, why you wrote it, and how you hope it's received, please? Sure. There is a sense in which this particular book has been 20 years in the making because it is an uh, extrapolated from a doctoral project that I did at Westminster Theological Seminary many years ago. Somebody on the staff of Presbyterian and Reform got a hold of the copy of that, read my doctoral thesis, and contacted me uh, and asked me if I would be willing to put that into, um, in a sense, lay language and kind of update it and revise it. And so over the past uh, two and a half years, almost three years, that's what I did. I worked on that along with my 
other responsibilities trying to transition that book. Um, that book was really written because of what I was experiencing in my own ministry. I was running into, in, in my pastoral ministry, one problem of sexual sin after another. And um, at that particular time, years ago, when I was working on my doctoral class, um, one of the professors there at the seminary said, you, you, you need to write your thesis on um, something in the area of practical theology that really um, maybe will help you in your ministry the most. And and that kind of rang true for me. That's I, I wanted to write something that would help me most in ministry. And I, I felt that there was a real deficiency out there in the Christian world with really solid books in this area. There were some books that were written, and some of them were uh, very biblical, but they were very short. They didn't go into it in, to any depth at all, on the one hand. And then there were other books, on the other end, that were written about this particular topic. And those particular books were um, very wise in terms of dealing with serious sexual issues, but they were extremely weak in using the Bible to address them. Most of them were um, psychologically oriented. They were based upon psychological theories that were just opposed to a biblical anthropology and how the Bible views man and how man functions and why man does what he does and what's the key problem of man. Many of those books were, were in a sense, devoid of any kind of real good biblical anthropology. So what I wanted to do was, in a sense, take solid biblical theology that had been carefully exegeted and contextually, carefully contextually considered, and bring it together with the addressing of those very serious sexual sins that tended to plague people that would um, enslave them. Uh, I don't use the word addiction in there. I personally don't like it. I understand people who use that that word, but it's a real secular term. You don't find the term used in Scripture at all. It's a secular term, and when you go back to the roots of that term, it goes back to a Latin root that actually has no hope in it. Instead, I'd rather use the biblical term that a person becomes enslaved or in bondage to a particular sexual sin. And the reason why that term, I think, is so important, especially when you're working in this area or counseling someone who's struggling in this area, is because you always have the opportunity to be able to be freed from that bondage, um, liberated from that enslavement. And so... That's a major theme that's in the book, what happens when a person becomes truly enslaved to a particular sexual practice that's a sinful sexual practice. And then in addition to that, one of the other things that I felt that the reason why this book needed to be written was this is a prevailing sort of very secret sin that is a part of the church. It's not revealed very often. I mean, uh, there is a sense in which when it is revealed and it becomes a public issue, that that is only one small part of a much larger percentage of people who are struggling. And thus far, I'm very gratified um, because in early February is when the book, book first came out. I just continue to receive feedback on this particular book from several different places around the world and talking about the fact that um, wow, this is really addressing something in some depth that um, is going on in my church, they'll, they'll say. Uh, now, there's one other interesting thing about this. Years ago, um, actually, someone in Brazil read my thesis and asked me for permission to translate it into Portuguese, And which um, long before Passions of the Heart came out, um, actually, the first time this was really published in formal form was in Brazil, and it was entitled uh, Purifying the Heart of Sexual Idolatry. And that book was already on the market, in fact, in June this year, I'm going down to Brazil, and one of the major themes that I'm going to be speaking on at two different conferences in South Brazil, around Sao Paulo, and another one up in Fortaleza is um, on sexual issues or marriage issues that are similar, similar to that. So um, that gives you a little bit of an idea of um, why we wrote the book, um, 
and it really addresses, it is a book that is a product of many years of actual one-on-one counseling, uh, mostly with men, but occasionally it's sometime with women, and anytime I counsel a woman, I always have either my wife or another, uh, or my secretary present when that particular uh, circumstance occurs um, with these particular issues. So it grew out of real practicalities where it grew out of. Well, um, I I really loved the book. Um, I told you before we recorded it, I thought it was one of the one of the best, if not the best, uh, in its genre. Um, you, you do a phenomenal job of walking readers through biblical change, sanctification, much more. And I just really, uh, really thought it was good. And one thing that really stood out to me is this whole idea of heart hermeneutics. So what exactly is that? <laughs> well, usually when a guy goes through seminary, he gets a lot of training in terms of hermeneutical interpretation of the Bible, that is, principles or rules of interpretation on how to properly understand the Bible well. Uh, But one of the weaknesses in most seminaries is the fact that very little time is spent on interpreting people uh, through a biblical grid. And heart hermeneutics is essentially interpreting what's going on in people's hearts using the Bible as the guide, as the grid by which you understand what's going in their heart. It's one thing to understand your Bible well, but you're never going to be a really good counselor or pastoral shepherd unless you understand people well uh, also. And bringing those two issues together are really critical. Uh, Understanding the Bible really well um, and interpreting it well and understanding and interpreting the hearts of people really well and bringing those two together and it's the, at that intersection of those two things where real change begins to occur, where people begin to see their particular issues in their heart um, clearly from a biblical perspective, and then they know what to do to change. There is a sense in which the Bible is the um, fMRI, the Functional Magnetic Resonance Imaging Program, uh, whereby we can take a look at the metaphorical heart, which is the core or the center of the soul of man, and say what's going on. Now, I can't see anybody's heart, and nobody can see really my heart, but the Bible becomes the guide by which to say, based upon external symptomology, attitudes, actions, reactions, how a person is going, doing, the Bible says this is what is going on in their heart. So you can you have the authority of God behind the fact that He created that person, He created them, uh, He knows their heart exhaustively, and He gives the interpretive grid by which you can interpret what is happening in the heart. So that's what we mean by heart hermeneutics. Yeah, that's that's really good. I was just really like, wow, that's really cool. I like that. Um, how do how so how do pastors and counselors engage in heart hermeneutics? Well. Um, part of it is a study of biblical anthropology, and that is, um, for example, um, we have been so influenced by our culture when it comes to just the issue of heart. I know that most people that are probably listening to your podcast are in a European-American context, and uh, European-American definition of the heart is radically different than the American definition of the heart are than the biblical definition, I should say, of the heart. Um, and the reason why I say that is, well, around Valentine's Day, what do you see all over the place? You see hearts all over the place and cards in the shape of heart and candy boxes in the shape of hearts. Why? Because the heart for European Americans is primarily the seed of emotions and romance, those kind of things. But in the Bible, the heart is not primarily the seed of emotions. In the Bible, the heart is actually um, the place where you plan, purpose, intend, and think. That's really critical. Um, Now, there are numerous passages that kind of illustrate this, but let me give you just a a sample just of a couple of them. Um, For example, in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5, before God sends the judgment of the flood, he says, uh, Moses writes, it says, Then the Lord saw in them. The word for saw there in the Hebrew is actually in the continuous sense. The Lord continually saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that, now listen to this, every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Now that's radically different than an emotional view of the heart. Here the heart is something that intends and purposes. The heart is something that desires, um, it uh, it plans, if you will, um, 
there's another example of this, for example, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 20. And in Proverbs, chapter 20, um, in verse 5, it talks about the fact that a plan in the heart of man is like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. Um, in other words, uh, purposes and plan. In fact, the Hebrew term for plan there can be uh, intentionality or purpose. And a man's heart is like deep water. In other words, it's hidden. And that's the key thing that drives sexual practices. It's like deep water, but a man of understanding draws it out. In the previous chapter, Solomon has said, in chapter 19, verse 21, many plans are in a man's heart, but the counsel of the Lord will stand. stand. So the, the heart not only has a plan, the heart can have multiple plans in it at, at one time and multiple purposes, multiple intentions, multiple desires in it. And our book is written in that direction. It, it's dealing with that. So um, in, in, in understanding heart hermeneutics, you're basically going after what are those plans, what are those purposes in the heart. Now, the Bible actually has a different or, uh, metaphorical organ of the body that deals with um, emotions. Um, you can see it in the Ephesians 4.32 where it talks about the um, the bowels of compassion. All right, if you want to talk about emotion and romance for the, from a biblical perspective, you're going to talk about the bowels. All right, I told my wife that I want to produce... Uh, new greeting cards for Valentine's Day for Christians. It has pictures of bowels on it with Cupid shooting arrows through bowels. And she says, I don't think it's going to sell, but it <laughs> 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 would, would illustrate more biblically what the Bible refers to in terms of emotions rather than the heart. Now, certainly what happens in terms of our desires in our heart, how we uh, plan and purpose in our heart affects our emotions, but it's not primarily, the heart is not the seat of emotions. It's, it has to do with our plans, our deep desires, our intentions, that's the thing that affects us. Mm, that's, that's just really well said, really well said. You write about preparing the heart for change. What is a biblical view of change and why is it important to understand in order to help people address sexual sin in their lives? Wow, that's an excellent question, Dave. Um, literally, we could spend several hours just in answering that question. And anytime I do answer a question like that, uh, in a short amount of time, I always feel like I've been uh, deficient in representing the comprehensiveness of the Word of God in answering them. Let me take a shot at it, if I can. I think it begins with the issue of um, how the Christian really understands their their life in Christ. Um, uh, some Bible scholars have called this um, identifying the indicatives in Scripture. Uh, like, for example, in Ephesians chapter 1, 2, and 3, talks about all the indicatives in Scripture, which really describes who the Christian is in Christ. Um, that's significant, and that is very important. That that If you, if you compare it to uh, wheels on a bicycle um, or... Um, um, England and Australia, they call it a push bike, but a two-wheel bike, if you compare it to the wheels on the two-wheel bike, it is the back wheel of the bike that sort of motivates and pushes that bike forward as you pedal. That's who we are in Christ. It motivates our sanctification. So Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 talks about who we are in Christ, understanding who we are in Christ, and how we have been saved by the magnificent grace of the Lord Jesus Christ from literally plucked from a mass of humanity headed towards eternal damnation and not because of anything worth or value in ourselves, but entirely based upon the grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. That should motivate us to greater sanctification. We live our life, in a sense, as a as people who are deeply and will be eternally grateful for that salvation that is undeserved, unmerited in any way, and yet based upon the grace and the infinite mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's the motivation behind real change, but that motivation does not always um, produce um, real sanctification until, now in sanctification, uh, well, in justification when we're saved, we have no part of that. God redeems us wholly on the basis of his grace and mercy. But in sanctification, it is a cooperative act between God and man. God's not going to obey for us. Um, he expects us to obey. He provides the motivation for it. He provides the 
the justification and the grounds for it, um, but we must obey. That's not a legalistic standard that's there. It's a natural outgrowth of who we are in Christ, but nevertheless, we must obey. And in this process, probably the shortest passage that describes that is Ephesians 4, 22 through 24, when he talks about the fact that after he's already talked about three chapters of who we are in Christ, now he talks about some of these imperatives that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. There's actually three significant Greek infinitives in those in three verses here. The first one is an active middle aorist infinitive to lay aside. That means aorist tense meaning once and for all. We once and for all lay aside um, our old self, the old desires, the old things that tended to rule our thinking and rule our behavior and rule our speech. We lay those wicked things along. And it's interesting how he describes them as being in accordance with the lust of deceit. It's our justification that enables us actually to do that. But we've got to decisively lay that aside, put off, if you will, put off the old man. And then verse 23 is the second Greek infinitive, and then it talks about to be renewed. This is a, now a present passive. He changes here the tense to a present passive. In other words, this is not something that uh, I do. I'm passive in it's something that God does. God gives us a brand new outlook or renewal of mind towards what is going on in our life and in our heart. So we put off once and for all those sinful attitudes, sinful desires, sinful plans, sinful purposes, uh, never intending to go back to them whatsoever. This is where true repentance comes in. And maybe I'll get to talk about that a little bit later. But then God gives us a brand new attitude and outlook on our life in that second uh, Greek infinitive. Then the third one is in verse 24 where he says, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now we're back to that aorist middle. Middle voice meaning we ourselves do it. And aorist tense means we do it once and for all. We ourselves put on a brand new, new practices, new desires, new intentions, new purposes, new speech, new vocabulary. Everything is brand new. So sometimes in counseling, I like to say permanent change in the Christian life for us on a human perspective is two factors. It has to do with putting off the old self, putting on the new self. Now, a lot of people in, in change, they, they understand the concept of stopping the sin. They understand that concept, but very few people work just as hard to put on new practices, uh, new practices that um, direct the life in terms of righteousness and holiness. But that's what real change is about. Mm, that's really, uh, that's really good. Really good. Dr. Street, what are some ways we can help people uncover the underpinnings of how they feed their passion idols? Well, one of the ways that I think is really helpful in, in, in doing this is, especially I found in counseling, is helping people to understand their past history. Because um, there is a sense in which we are who we are, but we are a composite of our, our past. Now, our past does not determine us. Many psychological systems say, basically, render this thing that the past determines a person. That's not true. But our past does influence us. That, that That is certainly true. There are means by which that you can ask good questions, first of yourself. What's really happened in my past that has helped to influence these desires that I have that are in my heart that I'm trying to help fulfill and uh, be fulfilled? Uh, in my book, I, I break these desires down into two broad categories. That is when the heart hurts and when the heart hungers. All right. And and then there are four primary characteristics of when the heart hurts and four primary characteristics of when the heart hungers. Well, when those kind of things happen, they happen in our heart over a period of time. And it usually has to do with our past influences that have been a composite of how we've responded to pressures in life. Let me give you a for example on this. And I, in fact, I talk about this situation. Several years ago, I was working with a young man who had only been married just for a couple of years. And this particular young man uh, had a problem with uh, masturbation. Um, he was into it constantly, which is the most greed-oriented type of sex. It's, uh, it's, um, it's the very thing that Ephesians chapter 5, verse 3 warns about. Uh, there must not be any sense of covetousness or greed 
even a hint of it among God's people, um, which is self-gratifying sexual activity. Well, uh, he had a real problem in this, and it was affecting his marriage. His wife was discouraged in this and so on. So working with him, I wasn't really making a lot of progress until I started talking with him about some of the influences of his past, and I asked him how he grew up. And then he described for me how he grew up in a family, his father and mother were constantly uh, fighting. They just constantly were at each other all the time. Um, I mean, and sometimes their, their arguments, their verbal attacking of one another became physical. His mother would throw things at his um, at his father, his father would push and shove and and hit his mother and and as a young boy, that's all he could remember. He he couldn't hardly remember any time that his father and mother were ever uh, ever compassionate uh, with one another. And so I asked him. I said, uh, "Well, tell me, what did you do when those kind of things happened?" He said, "Oh, he said I would always run up to my room." and closed my door and hide underneath my bed. He had um, a set of bunk beds in his, um, in his room, and he would hide underneath his bunk bed. And I, and I asked him, well, what would you do? And he said, I would, I would hide underneath there and I'd read comic books. And this, is, this was, in a sense, his escape from very, very unpleasant circumstances that were going on in his life. And as a kid, you don't know what to do. And so that's, you know, just get away and find some place where you can escape, where you don't have to listen to it. And in a sense, escape into a make-believe world is the idea. And then later on, as he uh, grew into adolescence, then what got mapped on top of that escapism and kind of... Um, going off into a make-believe world got mapped on top of that was his sexual desires. Uh, when they, they became really acute as a young man, um, and of course, running, hiding underneath his, his bed, reading those comic books, and of course, many of those comic, comic books actually exaggerate the attributes of women. Then he, his thinking and what he was reading, what he was imbibing in, that, in the past there was actually shaping and forming how he responded to difficulties in his life. And that was a very significant breakthrough in working with that young man because all of a sudden he realized that the only time he had a tendency to do this in his marital life was when pressure was turned up, whether it was on the job or he and his wife had an argument, then the way that he would um, take care of this is that he would escape into a make-believe reality world and he would gratify himself. That's the way he would take care of it. And at, it was at that particular point in the counseling that it dawned on him uh, that I can know when I am most weak and I am most tempted. I understand that now. Hmm. And you see, now that forms a lot of the underpinnings in terms of the history, the personal history of that guy, and what was really feeding his idolatrous escapism, all right? Instead, as a Christian now, he learned needed to learn to turn to Christ, not his fake world. Turn to Christ, and that was very significant. And identify areas where he's most tempted or going to be most tempted in this particular area. And then turn back to his wife and and seek to love her in a self-giving way. Now that gives you an illustration. There could be multiple, a thousand different illustrations I could give of that. But I think that helps to understand how do you get at these underpinnings. Hmm. That is uh, really, <laughs> that's powerful, really powerful. You were just talking about stress Um what is a biblical stress test, and how do we take such a test? Well, uh, I kind of fashion that after uh, what they do uh, for people in terms of cardiologists will put a person, I've been on a treadmill taking a, a stress test for my heart just to make sure that everything's functioning right to see if there are any blockages there. Well, in a very similar way, I talk about this in relationship to uh, the book Passions of the Heart. And what, what I'm talking about is is um, basically taking an honest inventory of your heart so that um, you understand what's really going on in your heart. And one of the reasons why I start off with the first chapter of the book where it talks about the fact that the heart is incredibly calculating, it's very clever, and one of the chief characteristics the Bible tells us about the heart is that it is easily self-deceived. Um, we have a tendency to have a, a very favorable view 
of what's really going on in our heart. And so doing a biblical stress test, you know, it's just kind of like a person who doesn't think that they have any heart problems at all. But when you get on the treadmill and you start running that treadmill and all of a sudden you get winded pretty quickly and you start to feel dizzy and then all of a sudden you realize you've got a blockage. Uh, There's a problem there and it's a serious problem and it's a deadly problem. Well, in a similar way, you've got to be brutally honest with your own metaphorical heart from a biblical perspective. And um, you have to ask yourself a lot of hard questions and be extremely brutally honest with yourself. For example, when I'm tempted to sin sexually, am I seeking to redress a hurt in my life or to gratify a hunger for sexual satisfaction? And, and it may be a, combina- a little combination of both, but I've got to be I've got to be uh, very truthful with myself. If you say a hurt, then you're going to, it's going to lead you down a certain path where I talk about in the book four basic things that could be going on in your heart at that particular point. Uh, like, I hurt because I'm angry, or I'm full of self pity, or I hurt because I'm very fearful, or I hurt because I'm very discontent uh, with what's going on in my life. That's a significant issue. Um, let me give you an example of this. Um, back several years ago, I was working with a young lady who was sleeping with her boyfriend. She's a, a professing Christian woman, woman, but she was sleeping with her boyfriend. I wanted to hear from her exactly why. I wanted to get her to be brutally honest with herself about why she was doing it. And she confessed to me, it was not because I really, really, really wanted to sleep with him. It wasn't because... You know, this was something that I just had a sexual drive that couldn't be resisted. And then in tears, she began to talk with me about the fact she said, I slept with my boyfriend because I knew it would hurt my father and mother. And I sat back in my chair and I thought to myself, what in the world is going on here? And she began to explain how she grew up in a very strict household and she resented how strict and hard her parents had been on her. And when she left that and went off to college, then this was her freedom. And this was her opportunity to, in a sense, hurt her parents back, to take what was considered precious to her parents, and that was her virginity, and give it away to her boyfriend. So what was she doing? Out of anger towards her parents, she was participating in sexual behavior and sexual sin that was ungodly. So here is a gal who's being very brutal in and with herself in answering this particular question why was she doing what she was doing now sometimes if you say hunger then my heart hungers that means that heart really wants some kind of satisfaction it can come in the form of flattery um i want person to a person to praise me because i'm willing to do sexual things for them or power and control. Some people use sexuality as a form of power control over people. Uh, some people use it as in form of self-reward. Some people use it in form of just providing comfort. Um, for example, in a self-reward, I remember dealing with a pastor of a very large church years ago who was caught in a police team. And that particular pastor was one of the hardest working pastors that I know. Uh, he, he did everything. It was a very large church. He did everything in that church. And about every six months, then he would slip off and he almost viewed righteousness like something that you put in a bank and then you withdraw it once in a while. Every six months he'd run off and, and hire a prostitute. But in this case, this was a police, a woman who was a police officer undercover. And he felt that this was his reward for working really hard for Christ and his ministry. This was his escape. His sexual sin was his self-reward. He wanted satisfaction. His heart hungered for some kind of self-reward after working so hard feverishly day and night and preaching sermons and and doing funerals and doing marriages and working with people this was a big issue that, that guy now is selling used cars hmm. thankfully his marriage is still together um in fact I, I were to script the way that a christian wife was to handle this it would be his wife but you, you get this idea of the, this is part of this biblical stress test is just identifying and being honest with the motivations that uh, affect the hurting heart and the motivations that affect the hungering heart and being brutally honest in dealing with those issues. Yeah, that's really good. What are what are some prerequisites for a pure heart before the Lord? Well, I think one thing is understanding the biblical concept of guilt. 
Um, because in our culture, we have a tendency, and this is especially true with contemporary psychology today, to label guilt as primarily our enemy. Guilt is not our enemy in the in Christian realm. It is our friend, and guilt is not a feeling. Guilt has to do with liability or culpability for punishment, a liability or culpability for a sin. It has to do with factuality. Guilt is a fact. It's not a feeling. Whether we feel guilty or not, this is one of the problems you run into in counseling sexual problems, is that oftentimes people really don't feel guilty about it. And the reason why that's the case is because they have practiced it for so long that they, they have seared their own conscience. So we've got to understand guilt if we're going to have a pure heart. Then we've got to understand the concept of repentance. Hmm. And if I were to shorten up the idea of repentance and all the theology of repentance that's in Scripture, I would shorten it up in a little statement by saying that to be truly repentant, it is a change of mind that is so complete that it leads to a change of life. That's genuine repentance. Metanoel is the New Testament word. It means to change a mind, but it doesn't mean just an intellectual change. It is a change of mind, and every time it's used, it's used contextually with the idea it's a change of mind that is so complete that leads to a change of life. Um, because a truly repentant person, as Second Corinthians 7.10 talks about, will evidence godly sorrow without regret. In other words, they'll be willing to leave their sin, and they don't regret leaving their sin behind. They're not like Lot's wife who had left Sodom and Gomorrah bodily, but her heart was still back there. And she turned around longingly looking at the city, but she still wanted, she didn't want to leave her hometown. And God turned to her a pillar of salt. That's worldly sorrow. That's not godly sorrow. So there has to be a, a biblical understanding of repentance. Then there has to be a biblical understanding of forgiveness, what is entailed in terms of forgiveness and God's forgiveness, understanding the fact that we live um, as Christians, um, with a Father, God the Father, who is infinitely forgiving if we're willing to confess and repent of our sins. And then last of all, I think the issue here for purity, and this is one of the biggest obstacles to overcome, is to be humbled by the circumstances of our sin. That being humbled is sometimes the thing that I feel is really lacking in a lot of men or women who are struggling with sexual sin issues. But if we're genuinely humbled, and that's really the case, then it's going to evidence itself in, well, as James talks about in James chapter 4, in the, in the fact that he says in verse 9, a truly repentant person, he says, Be miserable, mourn, weep, let your laughter be turned into mourning, your joy to gloom. Humble yourself in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. So, those four concepts, guilt and repentance, forgiveness, humility, are all really key concepts when it comes to really seeking purity of heart and moving forward. Mm. Well, um, let's say someone is listening to this right now, and I often get people that whenever I talk about sexual sin, um, they, they want help. Um, so we're at that point where somebody is convinced they need help with their por uh, pornography usage enslavement as you said which i agree with um what would be your top two or three or so uh piece of advice um to that person or to their christian friend to walk with them through this yeah that's another really good question um and by the way let me throw out here uh, many times when we talk about pornography we have a tendency to think that this is primarily a man's problem it's a male problem in the church of jesus christ and it certainly is. It's a serious problem among, among men. It's one of the secret sins of the church, uh, the issue of pornography. But it is also a female problem. And in fact, there's a huge female problem that has gone um, unaddressed in many uh, situations. We had a, um, a graduate student, um, her name is Rachel Coyle, who actually did a thesis on women's pornography. And she concluded that in many cases, women's pornography is more... Um, a more prevalent issue in the church than men's pornography because women's pornography is socially acceptable. Mm. And men's pornography, you would never go into a church library and find copies of Playboy magazine in a church library. You never do that. But yet you'll go into a lot of church libraries and you'll find romance novels where men are attracted to pictures, women are attracted to storylines. The storylines 
of novels, romance novels, even quote-unquote Christian romance novels, do the same thing to a woman's thinking that the pictures do to a man. It still stimulates certain things, ungodly desires and pure desires that are part of the heart. But to answer your question, um, what would be the top three or four pieces of advice to a person here who wants to get help or to fight against this. Well, I think they have to ask themselves, what is it that they are really wanting when their tendency is to go into this pornography? What do they want? What is their chief ruling desire that tends to dominate their heart? Uh, and another question that's probably very close to that is, what does porn really address in your heart? Mm. Uh, what does porn really address in your heart? For the man that I talked about earlier, who uh, was newly married, only been married two or three years, yet was still participating in a pornographic imagination and masturbation, that kind of thing, that was addressing his escapism. It was addressing the fact that he hated any kind of difficulty, conflict, stress in his life, and the way that he would do it is he would escape into this make-believe world. So... You have to be honest about what is this doing in my life? What am I really seeking to go after? Yeah, that's uh, that's really good. Um, and you've talked about asking questions, uncovering the heart, getting to the issue, walking with them, asking more questions. Um, you've modeled for us using scripture. I think those are those are all very good things. How do single people fight for purity? And yeah. Well, one of the classic examples I like to uh, appeal to for a single person in the Bible is Genesis 39 and the example of Joseph. Because Joseph here is a single man, and uh, of course God has honored him and given him the position of responsibility in Potiphar's household. Potiphar was a very influential man in Egyptian society. He was the an Egyptian officer, a pharaoh the captain of the bodyguard. Everybody knows the story of Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Now, one of the significant things that people don't realize is that archaeologists have showed us that for the most part, um, captains of the guard back in ancient Egypt, many of them were eunuchs. They were actually made eunuchs by Pharaoh because most of uh, the spies in ancient times were beautiful women sent into another country to seduce like the guards of Pharaoh and find out where Pharaoh is, what he's going to do, what his plans are for the army, that kind of thing. So he would take his guards and turn them into eunuchs so they couldn't be seduced. If that's what is true with Potiphar, then his wife is a very sexually frustrated woman. And it wasn't uncommon in that society for them to use their slave boys to satisfy themselves. And Joseph was a slave boy. And so she comes to Joseph and the Bible says that it's not a one-time temptation. She would come day after day tempting him, come and lie with me. And it's remarkable, Joseph's response to her, when he says, he says, how then can I do this great evil and sin against God? Now, what's so remarkable about that is the fact that Joseph, you can tell, has a laser focus on his real purpose in life. And so... I really want to drill down to, and helping single people with purity, what is your real focus and purpose in life? For Joseph, there is no doubt in my mind, his purpose was, over everything else, to serve and honor God. From a human perspective, he has every reason to give in to Potiphar's wife. I mean, he could rationalize and say, she's going to talk to her husband about me. And uh, that way I'll be promoted even higher in his household. His, her husband will favor me, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That kind of thing. He had every human reason to rationalize giving in to her. But he doesn't because he had a much higher purpose, an overriding purpose, that redirected his, his desires away from sexual fulfillment to how can I fulfill God and his glory in my life. And his amazing faith then is seen later on in Genesis 50, where he says to his brother, you intended all this for evil, but God intended it for good, saving you many lives. So you can see the purity of Joseph's life coming out in this particular case. Um, and I think single people need to go back in their thinking 
and say, what sets me up? What makes me weak or susceptible to impurity, sexual impurity in my life? What is it? Well, one of the main things is God is no longer the chief driving purpose and honoring him in their life. Their purpose is self-fulfillment or getting what they want or getting what they think is going to be righteous uh, or not righteous, but uh, uh, in a sense, pleasurable for themselves. That kind of thing. Yeah. So I, I think that's a key thing. That's really good. Dr. Street, how do married couples fight for purity? Oh, this is really important. Um, and of course, you run into this all the time and the grief and the sorrow when actually they're caught in sexual sin and they, they realize the sinful motivations that have brought about their sexual sin. But in a short answer, let me say this. They need to adopt the biblical motivation for sex and marriage. Uh, that's a short way of answering that question. And what I mean by that is, uh, for example, the Apostle Paul gives us an illustration of this. So does Solomon, actually, in Proverbs chapter 5. But Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 3, where it talks about the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and likewise also to her husband. Paul makes it very clear that, and we think it's kind of strange that in the context of sexuality, he's talking about duty. What is this, this duty that I have. It sounds so, it sounds so uh, obligatory. It sounds so artificial. But from a biblical perspective, it makes all the sense in the world. In other words, my duty in marital relationship is not self-gratification or self-fulfillment. My duty in the marital relationship is to fulfill my spouse. Hmm. That's my duty. That's what should be happening. That's what should be happening in the marriage. And so they've lost that. They're disobeying God in this particular area, and they need to readopt that biblical motivation for sex and marriage. It's their responsibility to do so. So in short answer, that's what we would say. Now, obviously, when we talk about this in our book, Passions of the Heart, there are many other things that can enter into this that can cause problems. But generally, we say whatever it is that enters into it, they have to refocus on their biblical responsibility and make that their goal in life. Now, when you get both husband and wife that see that as their primary responsibility, then now you have a mutual fulfilling relationship. All right. Sometimes I teach this in premarital counseling for couples are getting married and um, and of course sometimes they'll go off on their honeymoon and they'll come back and I'll say how was your honeymoon they'll say oh great and but then quietly they'll say to me you know we tried that as a, as a husband I tried to fulfill my wife as a wife I tried to fulfill my husband they made that my goal but things didn't work out really well and all of a sudden it, it dawns on me well listen you, you have the right motivation, but he needs to learn how to fulfill a woman. He doesn't naturally know that. And she needs to fulfill, learn how to fulfill a man. She doesn't naturally know that. So this becomes now a learning process in marriage. This helps couples fight impurity. And of course, all couples are going to have to realize that they married sinners. The husband's going to have to realize she, he married a sinner. The wife's going to have to uh, realize she married a sinner. And that there are going to be things that are going to come up in a sexual relationship because of sin because of your partner and it is the forgiving heart that's going to overcome that refocusing on the biblical motivation for sex and marriage which is not self-fulfillment but spousal fulfillment bringing joy to your spouse as proverbs 5 says that becomes the main main goal man that's that's really well said sir well well said well we've covered a lot and your book covers even more if you can imagine that guys it, it really does um as we wrap up this conversation dr street can you give us a few takeaways as listeners go ahead and pick up your book sure absolutely uh, i think one thing real quickly is that you cannot trust your own evaluation of your heart i if, if you miss everything I've said here. You cannot trust it. You've got to depend upon the Word of God to interpret what's going on in your heart. Even the Apostle Paul didn't even trust his own heart and his own conscience. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 4, he says, I am conscious of nothing against myself, he says. In other words, he's talking to the Corinthians about the fact, I'm not conscious of any sin in my life towards you. But then he goes on and says, but I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. In other words, the Apostle Paul says, even though I'm not conscious of any personal sin in my life, that doesn't make me innocent. Uh, it's the Lord who examines me. How's that going to happen for us in our contemporary day and age? It is the Word of God. When we, we allow the Word of God to examine our hearts and we're brutally honest with our hearts, that will help us strive for purity. There's a second thing I think that's key here, and that God will test your knowledge of your heart 
with um, your bodily desire for sex. In other words, everybody has certain hormones. Men and women both have hormones that desire sex. God doesn't test us with sin, but he does test us with desires. They're natural desires apart. The fact that you have sexual desire is not a sin, but like God said to the people of Israel in Deuteronomy 8, uh, why have I taken you through these four years of a wilderness experience? Why did he take him through 40 years of testing? He says, um, uh, so that your heart may be known. Now, God already knew their heart. He didn't test them so that he could know their heart. He tested them so that they would know their heart. We have a tendency to think we already know our heart, but we don't. So God tests your heart with your body, bodily desires for sex. In other words, that desire, that pressure that's turned up in your heart ends up revealing certain impurities come to the surface. Another thing I think there is that your purity then is revealed most when you don't trust yourself. Your purity is revealed most when you don't trust yourself. When I have somebody in counseling is struggling in this area and they say, okay, I've got it. I understand. I know what I need to do. I'm ready to go. I'm really strengthened by this. All the red flags in the world go up because I know they're not ready at that particular point because they trust themselves way too much. Hmm. No, they've got to be humbled before the Lord. We talked about that a little bit earlier. Humbled to the point that they do not trust themselves. And probably the last thing I'd say is this, that culture says that your identity is determined by your desire. I mean, we see this everywhere. We see this in the transgender circles. You know, um, I desire something. I desire to be a girl and I'm a guy or I'm a girl and I desire to be a guy. Um, uh, that your desire determines your identity. But the Bible says 180 degrees the opposite. Scripture says your desire is determined by your identity. In other words, how you see yourself. The millennial culture today, their mantra is be true to yourself. Nothing is more damaging than that. Right? If you're true to self, it'll destroy your life. If you're true to self because you cannot trust the sinful inclinations of your own heart, they are deeply embedded in your conscience. You've got to trust God. You've got to trust his word over the human tendency to love self and trust self. Well, Dr. Street, I just want to say thank you so much for your time today, for your very thoughtful, careful, and pastoral answers. I very much appreciate it and the book, and uh, just pray Christ's richest blessings on you, sir. David, it's been a joy to talk with you. I'm I'm hoping that it will be a blessing to many people um, in the future. More than anything else, whatever exposure this particular book has, we want it to bring glory and honor to the Lord Jesus Christ, and because it has a high view of his word. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We hope that you were encouraged by today's episode. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review wherever you get your podcast. For more uplifting and thought-provoking content, please visit us online at servantsofgrace.org. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Servants of Grace and on Facebook at facebook.com slash servantsofgrace. We hope you have a blessed day and we will see you next time.